Well, if you were asked uh, the question, uh, how would you describe what is required uh, for a Christian to grow and, and to flourish as a follower of Christ, how would you describe that? What would you say? Or if you were asked, what is necessary for the church to persevere, to succeed, even in a world that is filled with godlessness, a fallen and broken world, uh, what would you say? What are the important ingredients for a mature Christian life and church? Well, some of us might say, uh, knowledge of God's Word. We need a sound uh, theology. Others might say, public worship uh, that, that reveres and honors the Lord brings true reverence before Him. What about faithful teaching and preaching of the Word of God? Or community and fellowship where love and forgiveness are truly defining us as God's people? Well, all, all of those, all four of those are certainly biblically important. We might even say they're paramount, they're central. But apart from true faith, true, sincere, biblical faith, animating and giving life to the heart, then those things, the Word of God, will be information. It won't be transformation. Worship will be in some kind of form, but not heartfelt. As the Lord said through Isaiah, your hearts are far from me. The preaching, the hearing of the Word will proceed from the mouth, but will it rest on my heart and our hearts where change really happens? Fellowship may be uh, not beyond that sort of Sunday uh, smile at a surface level and not into true affection, carrying one another's burdens, uh, investing in one another's souls. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Daniel as he and his companions have been exiled by by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., uh, which was the result of the sin of the people of God. They're seeking to be faithful in this foreign land. And here, uh, in the second half of chapter 3, we see what sincere faith and trust looks like. So it's, it's uh, Daniel chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. What sincere trust and faith in the Lord looks like. Daniel 3, beginning at verse Uh, 19. Listen now to the Word of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took, to, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the kings, counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The, the book of Daniel as a whole, and certainly this episode, reminds us of something a vital for our life of faith, but of which we can naturally push back against. And that is, uh, we don't have uh, absolute power. We're not sovereign as people. Man is constantly laboring to make life work for him, uh, to center around him. He wants his schedule, his plans, his possessions, his relationships, all those things to benefit him, to benefit us. We don't wake up in the morning and think, how can I make things go poorly today? No, we don't think that way. We think, how can I make things work out today for me? But time and time again, our plans get disrupted. Expectations get shattered. Even in subtle ways, the fallen world in which you and I live pushes back against us. It's laborious to live in. It's part of the curse from the fall, from the sin of man. You, you probably noticed you, you can't make the laundry fold itself. You don't have that kind of power. You don't have that sovereignty. About once or twice every week, I pull into a particular Dunkin' Donuts because at this Dunkin' Donuts, there's free air pressure and I have a continuous leak in my front left wheel. Now you might say, Pastor, you should go have that checked out. I've had it checked out. They changed the tire. They changed all four tires. It still leaks. I'm not sovereign. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world's constantly pushing against us. But these are insignificant matters. What do we do? What do we lean upon when we face more serious things? When the culture increasingly is is in opposition to godliness. When a child walks away from the faith in which they were raised. When you feel pressure or temptation to keep quiet, keep silent about your faith. Or when the inevitability of death comes knocking. In what, in whom do we trust when our faith feels pressure? Well, Daniel and his companions were not only living in a godless nation and culture, one that did not acknowledge God and His ways, but they have become now the target of persecution 
and even death. The first verse of our text tells us the king was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What has happened in the story? Up to this point, Daniel and his companions had been able to worship the Lord, devote themselves to their God without persecution. Uh, Recall in chapter 1, when they were first exiled to Babylon, they were able to avoid uh, the king's kind of full assimilation process as he's seeking to build this great city and empire. The they, they refused the portion of food and drink, recall. They were committed narrowly to focus their lives upon devotion to their God. They didn't want to get pulled into the niceties and, and the pleasures that the king would lavish upon them. And so they could continue to devote themselves to the Lord. Into chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar threatened to destroy the magicians and the enchanters because they could not know or interpret that first dream, that unsettling dream he had. Not only did Daniel intercede to interpret the dream, the king recognized Daniel's God, promoted Daniel over the whole province of Babylon and his friends as sort of co-overseers. Things appear okay. They even seem to have the protection or favor of the king. But we need to remember what king this is, or more importantly, what kingdom he is serving, or what kingdom is ruling him. This is Babylon. This is Babylon. And in the Scriptures, in particular places, Babylon is not just a place. It's not just an empire that rules for a time. It represents spiritual darkness in every age. Toward the end of Revelation, chapters 17 to 19, as the Apostle John anticipates in chapter 19, midway through, uh, the, the event of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment, in these chapters, 17 to 19, uh, the world is described as one who has sold herself to evil a great prostitute. And her name? Babylon the Great. We read this in Revelation 18. John says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. All the nations have consumed, have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. The reason for Babylon's fall and judgment is this. The nations, the kings, the merchants allowed themselves to become infatuated with Babylon's pleasures and treasures. And as you go on, the people of God are called to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her and in her sins. William Hendrickson, the commentator, commenting on Revelation 18, says the admonition to leave Babylon is addressed to God's people in every age. 
Isaiah 48, Jeremiah 50, Zechariah 2. So Babylon is not only the city of the end time, Hendrickson says, it is the world as center of seduction in any age. To depart from Babylon means not to have fellowship with her sins and not to be ensnared by her allurements. The point is that the Christian in every age and every nation lives in the world, which is, to varying degrees, Babylon. We are Christians living in Babylon. And the world, Babylon, is seeking to build the kingdom of man in all kinds of ways, through innovation, through science, through technology, medicine, good things, yet man in his sin is building a city that not only offers the pleasures and the treasures and the earthly comforts, but a city, a kingdom that demands your loyalty, your allegiance. You see, up to this point, Daniel and his friends have been able to devote themselves and worship the Lord without the persecution of the world. Why? Because their devotion has not gotten in the way of the city of man. King Nebuchadnezzar has said, Essentially, thus far, sure, you can have your God. In fact, I acknowledge your God along with many others. But now, he has seen that their devotion to the Lord is taking precedence. And it's disturbing his social agenda. One might live much of their Christian faith. In fact, I'm confident for most of us, we have lived our Christian faith in great part, uh, in great part, apart from external persecution or great cultural and civil opposition. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for kings and leaders and magistrates for all peoples. Why? That we may live a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified. Yes, this is what we pray for. This is what we desire. But sometimes, peace is not given. A choice has to be made. Where's my allegiance going to be? Perhaps we make these decisions each and every day in various degrees. Will I keep quiet so as to avoid embarrassment or opposition or humiliation? Will I avoid particular scriptural texts that more easily offend the culture? Daniel's friends were in the way of the king's agenda. And here's a crucial point that comes through in this scene. The faith of these believers was evidenced in the necessity of their good work or deed. Words were no longer sufficient in demonstrating and living out their faith. If you turn back just a couple verses, 15 and 16, when they had refused to bow down to the king and to the image that he had created, the king said to them, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And their response was, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. A clear message and answer that it is now time to answer not in words, but in action. Other action. Other deeds. We're not debating. We're not defending. In words. Just watch us. What a great reminder. Sometimes the most powerful message does not come in words. It comes with a courageous act. We think about uh, how much Jesus' ministry 
uh, largely consisted of words, teaching, preaching, instruction. But as he neared the cross, closer and closer to his crucifixion, he was more often silent. When he stood before his judges, he refused to speak at, at much length. When before Herod, who had desired to have a time with Jesus, he refused to speak at all. And then upon the cross, his words were few. His final answer, like these three young men, would be an act of faithfulness and love and suffering. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most beloved and powerful chapters, I think, in Scripture. But sometimes the first nine verses can be so stressed that we, we kind of neglect verse 10. In 1 through 9, it stresses that we were dead in sin, in our transgression. God made us alive. By grace you have been saved. Not a result of works. But then you come to verse 10 which was stressed this morning in Sunday school. For we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. There's a a parable I remember years ago hearing that I I love. It's kind of long. I'm not going to read it all. It's the, the parable of the fishless fisherman. It's not one of Jesus's, but it is a good parable nonetheless. Well, there was a group who called themselves fishermen. All around were many fish, and they were hungry. Week after week, year after year, the fishermen met in meetings. They talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, how they might go fishing. They defined what fishing means. They defended it as an occupation. They continually searched for new and better methods of fishing. They sponsored special meetings called fishermen's campaigns. But the one thing they never did was fish. Well, they all agreed a board should be formed by those who had great vision and courage to speak about fishing and define it and promote it. The board hired staff. They appointed committees to define and defend fishing, search out new streams, perhaps, to pursue. But the staff and the committee did not fish. Expensive training centers were built to to teach fishermen how to fish. They taught the needs of the fish, the nature of fish, the psychological reactions of fish, how to approach them. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. But the teachers did not fish. You, You see where this is going. But it ends with this. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen no matter how much they claim to be. Yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Well, we get the point, and you could apply it to many things, right? The important work of words must be backed by other works and acts. We are called to let our light shine as Jesus said in Matthew 5, that the world may see our good works and give glory to God in heaven. And and these young men not only do a good work, they are reminding us that there's something to live for that goes beyond the value of our earthly lives. Our earthly lives 
are not what are most important. That we can live for the glory and praise of God. And that we can live with a a self-abandon for the Lord without fear of death. Because our God has overcome death itself. That's part of what comes through here in this story as well. Verse 23, these three men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. The king's astonished. He rose up and declared, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It's not that these men desired death. We naturally, understandably so, push back against death. It's the result of the curse. It's the result of sin. It's the penalty of sin. Paul says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. We're not to desire death, but neither are we to fear it. Uh, Author Tony uh, Ranke, in a book, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, that our family has been reading through, says this, Through His death, Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, 2 Timothy 1. Christ was raised to new life. The resurrection of Christ is the boldest historic claim of any religion. It's the essence of the Gospel. As we believe in Christ, we have assurance in the face of our own physical death, a confidence that God will also raise us up to new life. Christ broke the chains of death over our lives and has freed us from the tyranny of sin and death. Death isn't simply a technical glitch awaiting a technical solution. Death is our enemy. We don't rationalize death. We tell death to go to hell, for that is where it must go. Whether that fourth man uh, was an angel or some believe a Christophany, that is the, the, the appearing of Christ pre-incarnate, whoever it is, whoever it was, it's the power of our God and the presence of our God that sustains life, that brings life where there would be death. Resurrection where death once reigned. Perhaps you're not fearing death. Perhaps we don't think much about death. Perhaps we should. Our culture will deny death, ignore death, mask it. But if it does surface, the culture often will only offer the only hope it has to extend life a little bit longer. Maybe in time we can get people to be living 90 on average, 100 or 120. It won't make much difference. I think about the last 15 years of my own life and I wonder, where did they go? So it is with life. Whether it's 40 years, 80 years, or 120, the Scripture says life is a mist. It is a mist. It's a mist that counts, but it is a mist nonetheless. And so the Scripture says to us, the way to live with true faith is to live for Christ. For His purposes are greater than our own lives. And to live in Christ. In Him is true life and life everlasting. There's a song by a a Christian band I don't know a lot about, but I like uh, these words from a song called The Cost. 
I will walk the narrow road because it leads me to you. I've counted up the cost and you are worth it. I do not need safety as much as I need you. You're dangerous, but Lord, you're beautiful. I'll chase you through the pain. I'll carry my cross. Because real love is not afraid to bleed. We're going to sing in just a few moments. Uh, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh, how long, O God of Jacob, be my strength. Let's pray together. Lord, how we praise You for Your Word and the working of Your Spirit. To to write Your Word on our hearts would give life to our souls. How we thank You for the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. The One who was crucified, the One who was risen forevermore. Oh Lord, unite us to Him. Bind us to His heart. May we know more of of His Spirit at work within us. Give us courage and encouragement, Lord, to live out our faith with boldness. Dispel fear or doubt. Lord, as we journey after You in the path and the pilgrimage that You've set us in and upon. Lord, we pray that You form us together as Your people as we live after You. That You would pour out Your your blessings upon the church of Jesus Christ that we would know the riches of Your grace. We pray that You continue, Lord, to be with us. Lord, as we celebrate the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ together. For this we pray in His name. Amen.